Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm recording this on the day it's released. It's still dark out this morning, and shades are down. And I've just finally got my cup of coffee ready, so we're ready to go. I uh, I started this out yesterday in my notebook, and I wrote down 3-1. And even before dawn, I realized it's birthday month, and I put that in there with a big exclamation mark. <laughs> so I sort of get the maximum benefit. And then... Oh my gosh, I, I started writing this out and I went almost the whole day. I don't know why. And, I, you know, and I've got a, um, a vacation coming up this week, a sudden uh, backwoods, off-grid situation, um, not the usual. Um, it just happened so suddenly. And it's, it's really disruptive to the business, but I just love doing it because it's sort of these sorts of things are why I'm, you know, I've chosen this freer lifestyle, you know. So it's like to spend almost the whole day working on <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. But here we go. I, oh, and, you know, I kind of decided, well, I'll just try it. Maybe next time I at least when I have something larger to write, maybe I'll go ahead and type it, you know, like in the computer thing and um, be able to go back and edit a little bit. Because, cause, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I just don't have time to edit when I spend so much time writing so anyway we're gonna start out um so so during that that fateful run to gabriel's bookstore in which i um you know i painstakingly selected 40 or so records on hands and knees over the course of an hour in the back of the shop um you know periodically pulling my pants up kind of thing and my knees are sore and anyway after carefully viewing every option laid out um in about eight bins of mostly unwanted unwanted vinyl pressed in a, from an era spanning roughly 1925 to 85. Uh, one album cover, just, just two records in to my search when I still had ample energy for the task, it really stood out, sort of called to me for reasons that are pretty subtle and kind of hard to explain. You know, so subtle, it's, it's sort of like, is, is the, are, is, are the albums alive? You know, like the toys and the movie Toy Story. And maybe this one was rather weary after sitting unloved and unused for maybe decades um the only problem was the actual record wasn't there the the badly beat up cardboard sleeve containing a it's got a uh, maybe a four by six oval photo the, of the performer playing a violin that i i later learned was a, a stradivarius violin um very old and grainy black and white but the 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 sleeve is empty anyhow um, the man playing it has this uh, mixture of reverence and utter confidence while holding it as an extension of his own body or soul, perhaps, um, as he works the bow across the strings. And, oh, well, no record, so I, I just moved on, you know, didn't think much of it. But I, but it just sort of stuck with me a little bit. I, man, I wish that record was there. And amazingly, I found it sitting loose about 100 albums later in another stack and reunited it with its cover and placed it on top of my keeper pile. Um, yeah, so yeah, and, and it was easy because you know, like I said, this is like $5 bag day. So I got all these for $5. Um, I'm going to I've got it on the turntable. I'm actually going to flip it over. I want to start out with side two for some reason. He's playing Smetana, which I never heard of, this composer. I'm not this huge music file, by the way. I just enjoy it. Um, the only thing I know about Smetana is in Russia, it's sort of a um, 
uh, sour cream that people have. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna do an experiment and see if this works. Uh, I'm gonna let let him play on, and if this gets long, it's it's possible I go ahead and do side one and side or side two and then side one on a separate recording. Anyway, this musician, David Oistrak, he's he was born in 1908 in Odessa, Ukraine which was then part of the Russian Empire during the Tsarist period. And he later moved to Moscow where he achieved great fame while winning like all the awards, you know, like the Stalin Prize, stuff like that. He became one of the Soviet Union's leading cultural ambassadors as he traveled the world playing a Stradivarius. Um, actually, he played seven different of these seven different Stradivarius, Stradivari, I don't know. Um, any, any, you know, he, he's, he's select the one, you know, whatever that just shows like how like important he was to the, to the country. He was sort of a, a national treasure to be able to play these national treasures and take them out of the country and stuff. Anyhow. Um, oh, also his son, Igor, I just noticed this. He he also achieved some fame with the violin. He just died about six months ago at the age of 90. Crazy, huh? Um, at least I think that's crazy. But so the point of this ramble um, it is the power of art and culture to produce a depth of feeling and understanding and love and appreciation that can transcend cultural boundaries and even promote friendship and respect. So essentially, it's hard to hate somebody you've grown to love. Let's turn him down just a bit. Hopefully, this is recording okay. I've got to plant a bunch of things that'll be, you know, germinating as a ski atop of this, these many feet of snow. Um, so this is relevant for geopolitics and also for personal life and growth. Um, so like my own journey from being utterly helpless in cubicle world to independent farmer, writer today, and, and generally happy and fulfilled is a small example of this. And I'll just insert here. I So like yesterday's just sort of like what felt like a debacle, for example, of this beautiful day. I mean, it was the warmest I mean I don't know I think it got to 35 degrees and and sunny and the sun feels like June I mean it's unbelievable um you know when I was inside just writing <laughs> but I I do appreciate that on some certain days I have the freedom to do something like that and I am working at essentially crafting an art form here and I'm not efficient yet I'm not um you know, I'm, I'm not great. You know, I, this is a stream of thought, you know, <laughs> and, and it's just all these ideas. Uh, anyway, so. Yes. OK, so this journey to being. Yeah. OK, so anyway, basically, I was on a pilgrimage from the moment of losing my job in 2014 until about 2017 when this farm really got cranking. And this involved connecting with the land and people of this area in a way that was impossible when the cubicles hemmed me in and walled me off from local culture to a significant degree. 
is I reported to a distant mothership that really wasn't rooted in any place. Um, this huge company whose chief concern was answering the shareholders who kept the stock price soaring and contributed to the CEO's annual pay that <laughs> it's, it's funny. I, sometimes I don't even know, like, what did, what did I write? A anyway, they basically, yeah, I mean, the stock price soared while I was there. And after I left, like, I, I, I lost track at a 400% increase after being laid off. And, the, you know, the CEO's annual pay when I was there <laughs> was that in a, in, was, was $100 million, sorry, through, through the salary and a combination of uh, stock options. And I mean, it's unreal, right? And and it really, and and just sorry, and just to add, like, just how like unrooted it was, it 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 was is like in a state, you know, like based in a state, actually my home here in Minnesota, but it isn't licensed to issue to 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 do insurance in Minnesota. <laughs> anyway, just to give it, I mean, and it's this major insurance company. Anyway, it's just fat. It, I always found that rather ironic. So it never really felt like it was here. Anyhow, the intensely demanding job, which required sitting at a computer for 40 to 50 hours a week, sucked me dry, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Add in the demands of young children, twins, which I know we, we only have two kids, but twins it just compounds things and we're in an easier stage now but it always felt like it was like having four kids um and endlessly upgrading a 100 plus year old house and, and you can just imagine there just wasn't much time or energy for other pursuits such as you know scrawling out this screed uh when the relationship which come to think of it wasn't altogether unrelatable to the sort of complex history Ukraine has had with Mother Russia. Um, when the relationship was severed through a sudden layoff for which I was underprepared in every conceivable way, the process of rebuilding my life after this great divorce following 12 years of corporate servitude that had essentially laid the foundations of our adult life in Duluth was incredibly painful, arduous, but also tremendously liberating as freedom slowly unfurled itself before me. And it was a process. It still is, frankly. Anyhow, interacting with people who are wildly different from me in terms of their relationship with, with and acceptance of risk, political viewpoints, and every other conceivable aspect of humanity was indispensable to my metamorphosis, which is ongoing, of course. So I don't have time to go into it here. It'll be a major part of my upcoming book, in fact. But at the moment, I'm happiest about becoming free to be wrong. I know that's a weird thing to say. Um, you know, like I can record this podcast and, and some of this stuff might not be popular and maybe I'll be wrong. Um, but this is incredibly liberating. Uh, there's just so very much I don't know or understand and I'm free to explore these things without the weight of needing to be right 
growing and understanding and experience with humility is a beautiful thing. Um, the world is remarkably complex and precious few issues should be reduced to binary choices between left and right. My, my thinking has become more fluid and less rigid while embracing pragma pragmatism based on the best information at the moment, whereas previously development was arrested through endless deliberation in search of a perfect choice while becoming stuck in analysis paralysis. It's better in most cases to be wrong and to fail at something, but, but paradoxically, you find yourself moving forward through the failure. And um, this mentality is easy to assent to on an intellectual level, but it takes time to achieve in practice because of the relentless pressure, pressure to put our best foot forward and convey the fictitious notion that we have our lives together and things are all working out splendidly while we put out regular press releases on social media that testify to our glittering lives. Yeah, and that, that pragmatism, that's, I mean, that's something that I think is making a comeback due to this uh, crisis and just the last, even last couple of years. I really hope so. So turning to the geopolitical level, I graduated high school in 1994, just after the end of the Cold War. And throughout my entire adult life, Europe hasn't had to take its security very seriously. So they've steadily decreased military spending as a percentage of GDP. And the U.S. has also attempted a decrease over decades. This is, once again, just not straight up dollars, but a percentage of GDP. Um, it was much higher during the Cold War. Well, in, in just a matter of days, this has changed. Um, it's it's mind-blowing. Uh, Germany, for example, has moved to immediately add $100 billion to military spending. And the chancellor received this enthusiastic, you know, like, like standing ovation, you know, response for increasing the spending on the military, on uh, making that increase a permanent thing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Keep to the script, son. Um, so, so like perhaps even making a, you know, pushing through a constitutional amendment, for example. I mean, this, that's incredible, um, especially given their history. They've been very reticent to have much military capabilities, at least on their own unilaterally, that is. Anyhow. Uh, other nations are making similar decisions and we're clearly, clearly moving into a lasting period of military buildup after this being largely taboo for at least 30 years. And th this, unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, is a macro example of pragmatism. And basically, the world is complex and fluid. The rules can change rather quickly regardless of our ideals, and, and we must adapt. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, sorry, I, I am serious. We must adapt, you know, as the rules change. And in, interestingly, very interesting to me, as a side note, I've noticed people on Facebook who previously would have leaned far left and been doves have been far more supportive of using the military more aggressively. 
And I've also seen these folks share things like um, ways that directly support the U Ukraine military. Um, you know, like help buy weapons here, buy a grenade. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, I don't mean to laugh. Okay, uh, it's just it's just incredible the, the the change. So so you can directly support the Ukraine military through things like purchasing digital NFTs. So like a an image that you'll just buy. It, it's fascinating to see these shifts in po in popular opinion happen so quickly, and this makes me wonder. For example, if things like ESG investing. Um, this is responsible investing, you know, uh, environmental and social and corp corporate governance. It, it, it always shuns absolutely any company that, you know, that profits from the military industrial complex. Now, is this going to shift to accommodate armament manufacturers that are somehow perceived as more virtuous? I'm just curious. It's just, uh, it's just fascinating to, to see this happening right in, in, in a matter of days. And uh, globally, I think we're seeing a kind of <sighs> naivete or a, maybe a naive optimism being turned on its head for at least the next generation. Regardless, you know, so like this um, liberalization, uh, globalization, uh, you, know, you know, stuff like that in, in our international relations that, you know, like we'll all get wealthy together, you know, that this is going to change the world and it's just, it's just being turned on his head. So uh, regardless of our intentions, uh, leaders like Putin, who aren't afraid of war for the sake of unilateral or even personal gain, they do exist and diplomacy isn't always possible. Ah, coffee. Okay, this carries me back to Tolstoy and one of the greatest novels of all time, War and Peace, which centers itself around the War of 1812 and Napoleon's disastrous invasion of Russia. And I heartily commend this book to you and will encourage you by saying that the commitment isn't nearly as overwhelming as you probably think. Um, first, for, first of all, treat yourself to a copy with, you know, and obviously some of you, you know who you are. You're never going to read this. That's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, Treat yourself to a copy with beautiful artwork on the cover. It, it should feel comfortable in your hands, and the words are laid out in a pleasing manner on the page. Um, you should enjoy looking at and spending time with this copy. It's going to be a while. Um, and, oh, and also, I'll just, you know, like, most folks aren't going to check this thing out from the library and complete it in a month. So it's worth shelling out 14 or so dollars for a decent paperback. Um, I mean, that's just the truth. I mean, for me, it was life changing. And I unfortunately, I, I bought the cheapest copy I could find. I didn't know the difference. You know, just really the words are just really small and crammed together, no margins. Um, and it did take me a while to get into it. Uh, and, and this is I mean, I read this when I was in college. Uh, anyway, also, you might look for a copy that contains a list of all the principal characters in the front along with their nicknames, formal name, patronymic, uh, etc. Uh, confusion over names is why most English speakers fail to penetrate into the rich soil of Russian literature. You know, and you could also, I'm sure you can just print something like that out on the internet, but you need it physical, a physical copy right in front of you. Um, I've never done that, but I'm, I'm for sure going to do that when I reread the book. Um, Okay, 
back to my short excursion into geopolitics. The um, <laughs> I man, I don't know why I'm getting it. Well, I think this makes sense. All right, so bear with me, man. Um, back to my short excursion into this thing. This the current forces that are unleashing unprecedented and rapid change upon the global order point toward, in my opinion, uh, you can make a case either way, um, toward Tolstoy's philosophy of history that basically says that large forces move history as opposed to the idea that great men like Napoleon are the cause of these tectonic shifts or you could say like Putin for example or Hitler um, anyhow he goes on for probably 400 pages on this uh, interspersed in sections throughout the book uh, 10 to 50 pages each that you can just skip and and not miss a beat you know or maybe like if I could do it over again I'd read I'd read these until you get you, you get his notions on this maybe maybe just two to three pages and you'll get it <laughs> and it's all it's all you need and he just keeps on going on and on maybe like I'm doing now in fact the last I think the last 50 pages of the book it's more it's more of the same it's it's like you're there for the the, the story not not his philosophy <laughs> on this but yeah so I promise you that those dry sections they don't get any better as you move through the book so if you skip that, it, the book isn't nearly as long. But in fairness, um, Tolstoy was writing 50 years after the invasion and occupation of large areas of the country. I mean, I, you know, I think they got all the way up to, to Moscow, you know, and then were pushed back. And it, it was, it, the, the nation had been devastated in ways the Ukrainian people are relating to at the current moment, um, but over a period of six months. And... So these people, not that I'm an expert, okay? These people, not fully East and definitely not Western in mentality, have a vastly different history and experience of the world than us. And my contention is that the only real way to puncture through this barrier is through cultivating an appreciation and understanding of their great art. So... Russia, since at least the 19th century, has been fiercely proud of its art. And unlike sporting events, where they have a long history of cheating through doping for the sake of national pride, there are none of these sorts of concerns in literature or music, for example. Um, I really believe that the world would be a different place right now if our leaders in the 90s and the early aughts had cultivated an understanding of Russia's contributions in these areas. So like the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow, it's, it's I mean, it's one of the most beautiful theaters on earth. Um, it's a kind of visible manifestation of their collective pride and heritage in these, in these areas. You know, like, like the ballet, for instance. I mean, they, it didn't originate in Russia, but they refined it into largely what it is today. Um, so more time could have and should have been spent in the simple process of enjoying these beautiful things. I mean, it's kind of like, almost like, like, like I've been experiencing on my pilgrimage. Um, there's just a depth of understanding, appreciation, love, and connection that cannot happen solely through talking any, or even listening. And, you know, it reminds me... Um, when I, I went and met the, the mayor when she was first elected before she became the mayor, and I, you know, I wrote a, a story about her, 
and we walked you know i spent a good two hours with her i think met her at her house and we went for a walk through the neighborhood and then we had tea at a little shop and she one of the things she said to me you know i was conveying to her this sort of stuff i was doing and, and she she mentioned something like once you um you hear a story or whatever once you attach yourself to a story i think i think that's what she said you uh there's a loyalty to it that never goes away and i really experienced that even when people are, are really different and have many different opinions and and you know like you know uh, yeah okay sorry <laughs> i mean i'm di very different than these okay sorry oh geez eddie stop talking okay so Okay, back to the text. Um, so there's this depth of understanding, appreciation, love, and connection that can't happen solely through talking or even just listening. There's this weight of cultural experience that isn't comprehended or understood through the simple collection of facts and talking points. Also, time spent side by side experiencing these great performances or discussing a shared love of Tolstoy or Dostoevsky for example builds trust in a way that run-of-the-mill carrot-and-stick diplomacy cannot and of course our political winds tend to shift rather dramatically every four to eight years and you know while the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago the, the second best is today and yes, I know we, we're not going to read ourselves out of the current crisis. <laughs> um, I spent six weeks in Russia during the summer of 97. I, th I believe it was 97. It might have been 98. It was part of a cultural exchange to Duluth's sister city, Petrosovotsk, which is located in the far northeast of the country in a region known as Karelia, which it was stolen from Finland by the Soviets in 1940. I'm sure they have an opinion on it that's maybe not so maybe they wouldn't use the word stolen but it was stolen <laughs> um I arrived with my you know kind of like the Crimea situation anyway I arrived with my naive optimism uh, and um, my unread copy of War and Peace um but I, I had read uh several smaller works you know and a working knowledge of Russian history, which was my emphasis as a history major in college at the time. And if anyone was ready to connect on a deep level with the people and country, it was me. And paradoxically, my experience on the trip was relatively miserable. <laughs> so maybe I'm con contradicting myself. On the surface, it might seem like that, but I don't believe I am. Um, most of the reasons were, were unavoidable, honestly. Uh, for example, of 17 people on the trip, just three were guys. Uh, one of these was, I mean, I don't call many people jerks, but this guy was a jerk. Uh, he was a true blue jerk. <laughs> and he paired up with the other fella, and, you know, they uh, often excluded me to a great degree. And also my Russian roommate was almost never in our room. Uh so we were all paired up with Russian roommates on the, you know, on the campus and we, you know, stayed in these dorms. And so he was never there, never there because he was married and lived off campus. 
it was just weird. So for whatever reason, they had trouble recruiting Russian males to participate in a similar way that American men didn't want to go. Apparently, it's just it's just odd. Um, it, oh, and also the guy flirted with everyone, including my future wife. <laughs> I mean, even though he's married. Um, and speaking of that, with with uh, Shauna along on the journey. I couldn't exactly spend hours connecting with beautiful Russian women, many of whom no doubt dreamed of securing an American husband as their ticket out of the country, which, I mean, I did experience that actually. Um, like this explicit, you know, <laughs> uh, through words, you know, like they, they were, this person mentioned that and like kind of propositioned me. Anyhow, um, Anyway, they, yeah, they, I mean, this, they, they were in the depths of their crisis at the time in the late 90s, and the country seemed to be circling the drain. Sorry, that's what I'm getting at. I could go on and on. So, but like college kids anywhere, for example, they weren't terribly enthralled by great literature or history. <laughs> I mean, some of them had a, you know, you know I, mean, they, I mean, they had all read, you know, but sort of like if you asked your average American 19-year-old about the great Gatsby. Just who cares, right? Um, but um, oh yeah, yeah. In 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 contrast, uh, a rather um, a large cadre went off to the discotheque one night and danced until five in the morning, and um, everybody was talking about it, you know, ahead of time and knowing that was just beyond my capacity you know i just stayed alone in my room and i mean that's sort of the thing about being an introvert i guess um i mean basically i just don't do well in these sorts of arranged situations where you're essentially a captive for long periods of time and helpless to do anything about it you know i mean just like you know you get around people that you just don't for whatever reason, you're, you you know, you, you guys aren't simpatico and you just have to change your situation. And I mean, crap, I didn't learn how to do that until after getting laid off. I mean, I, it wasn't even my decision to leave the company. It was theirs. So I don't know, just a comment. Anyway, um, at some point, however, somebody arranged for me to visit with an old babushka or babushka. She was about uh, 85 years old. So she had a working memory of the entire Soviet experience, which was you know, pretty, pretty freaking fascinating. I brought her flowers. Um, I remember it was an odd number because even an even number is, if memory serves, is appropriate for funerals. And, uh, and you know, we enjoyed a wide-ranging conversation. Um, you know, ha having a translator helped, but it's terribly hard to connect on a deeper level with, with such a language barrier. And I, I did, you know, after we got home that the next year, I did take one year of Russian, but, you know, I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, it, one year, it's not going to do much, but I mean, I can read it a little bit, but I can't read a book. Um, anyhow, she gave me an old book when I departed, which contained the photos of Lenin and Stalin in the front. Um, the authors under the direction of, of Stalin at this time during one of his great purges in the 30s were obviously instructed to construct history. This was like a, a history of the Soviet Union and in Russia for um, probably high school 
kids. Anyway, they were instructed to construct history in such a way that definitely contradicted Tolstoy's idea of large historical forces being at play and placed these two men at the center of Soviet history with, with Stalin being featured much more front and center in the early days than he actually was. Um, now, though, now, as in right now, in Ukraine, I read the most devastatingly haunting taunt from a Ukrainian woman directed at, at Russian soldiers who were filing, filing by, um, which was somehow simultaneously beautiful. It's the sort of thing that, I don't know, we, 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 we couldn't come up with this. Anyway, she, she shouts out to them, put these sunflower seeds in your pockets so that something beautiful might spring up after we bury you. I mean, only, and I'm writing only a Slavic person could, could come up with something like that, but I don't know. There's just a different way of being out there. Anyway, um, and I imagine her hollering this at a young conscript, maybe 19 years old, and, and throwing the sunflower seeds at him and them. Uh, Americans don't speak like this. Our cultural soils are, soils are worlds apart. And uh, what follows is a crazy quick breakdown from memory. Some details might be off a bit, but the general high-level view is sound. Let's see how, how we're doing on time. You know what? Eddie's going to go ahead and pause it here. Side two just ended, the Smetana thing. I'm going to keep recording, and we'll just do a separate episode for the, for the rest here. We're, we're moving more into Ukraine and some history here. Okay. Have a, have a good day.